if we look at the notion of the creation of disability and race through especially the lens of the transatlantic slave trade, where so much of your value as a you know as an object as the objectification of black people within that system was dependent on your physical attributes so the creation of disability then as being inextricable from capital value that if you are disabled if you are incapable of carrying out your functions that were deemed to be within this sort of you know capitalist inhumane frame you are automatically less than Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahima Manzil Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world and therefore how we transform it. For this episode, I sat down with my friend Anamika Misra. She's an autistic PhD researcher and assistant lecturer at Kent Law School. She's previously been involved in the Decolonising the Curriculum project at Kent, and she organises with precarious staff and students of colour across a range of social justice issues. She says that although she's supposed to have academic expertise in the law of armed conflict and human rights, she finds the language of expertise problematic and prefers to say that she's interested in learning about race, colonialism, disability, sexuality, and gender. As you can imagine, with all those interests, we had a really interesting conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. So, I'm really excited this week to introduce Anamika to my podcast. So, hi Anamika, how are you? I'm good. Um, Just, you know, chilling out, taking some time off from doing work. And really excited as well to be on the podcast, finally. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm very glad to have you. Um, Because today we're going to be breaking down the binary of disability and ability, which... I have previously touched on slightly um, in the podcast on season one where we did healthy and sick as a binary, but I think actually this was something that I wanted to delve further into, but I just didn't really feel, you know, necessarily comfortable or confident to do that. So I'm actually really glad for this chance to more rigorously get into this with somebody who is experienced or conversant at least in these conversations. Um, And so before we get into like breaking anything apart, um, I feel like let's approach what it is as it says it is. So in the sense that we're talking about today, um, how have you come across or come to recognize these concepts of ability and disability in your own life or work or experiences? So I'm autistic and I got to know that I was autistic about two years ago, but I feel like a lot of what I experienced as an autistic person was kind of peppered across like my life in different forms and and kind of was fed back to me through my interactions with my parents or with like the school system and stuff like that. 
But um, I think the first time this kind of like binary of ability and disability became really kind of obvious to me was, and this was before I got diagnosed, uh, and I was going through a period of like generalized anxiety and depression, and I was in my final year of university, like really, really, you know, stressed about finishing really properly, getting that scholarship for doing the master's and just really anxious. And so I went to speak to my academic advisor and, you know, ask him for like, can I get an extension on this essay, which I have due in a few weeks. I just don't have it in me to, to do this essay right now. And he goes, um, yeah, sure. But like, what's the problem? You seem OK to me. You haven't missed any classes. You know, you seem to be turning up for everything. You even submitted a few things last week. Like if you're going to get an extension, you will need to go to the doctors and get like a medical report form, kind of all of these sorts of things. You have to engage with the system. And I found the interaction really strange. And even now thinking back to it, like I'm sure he didn't have any, that, that conversation was not like, he was not being malicious in that conversation. He was, it wasn't like a put down. For all intents and purposes, it was a very innocuous statement. Like, oh, but you seem fine to me even though I was not fine. And I felt that all of a sudden that all the experiences I've been having, all the difficulties I'd been facing were not recognizable, were not that important to be recognized. Unless, of course, I went through the system, got diagnosed, got all of these sorts of, you know. Yeah, it almost wasn't real, yes. It almost wasn't real, but it was so real to me. And I think that was when, just because I was able to, you know, attend class, just because I was able to, you know, turn up for some... Uh, events or conferences and doing all of these things it just seemed like I was fine and I think that's the first time it became really obvious to me so and, how yeah. do you link how and and how would did that link to you to the the words or the concepts of ability and disability was it that you know he was assuming but you're so able like you're able to do this yeah I think for me it was in the sense that like he basically thought that because I was able to do things, I could not be having a disability. And I think that really goes to the core of how we actually understand ability and disability, because so much of it becomes this sort of visual way of understanding what is disability and what is ability. And of course, that visual way is constructed in a very normative sort of sense around, you know, like, oh, you can meet these certain expectations, which are, of course, tied down to capitalism and race and gender and all of these things all of these other structures around us that kind of you know create our life world and of course we'll be like going through that in this con in this discussion that we're having but it definitely felt that because even if it wasn't like a massive thing like you know capitalism seems like this very massive concept but if you really bring it down to let's say i could attend class or i could hold down a job and that in itself seems oh you you're able to function like a normal human being so clearly you must be okay and clearly you do not have a disability. Yeah, and that fits with the whole, um, you know, fit to work thing that the government has that, you know, if you're classed as fit to work, then you should be working. You don't have any uh, excuse, quote unquote, I suppose, that would count you as being disabled. And, you know, we've heard stories of people, you know, collapsing and dying in the queue to get their fit to work benefit or, you know, being struggling so much to get there. But then because they present, you know, in whatever ways we assume to be, oh, you're somebody who does not have a disability or you're not disabled then there yeah it's this very clear cut you know to there's either you, you can or you can't yeah and I think with anything that's clear cut it ends up you know getting rid of a lot of the nuances that sort of exist in the disabled abled kind of manner because 
I, I, might, I might be able to do some things, but at the same time, I might, not be, I might be unable to do other things, but that doesn't negate one or the other. And I think that is the important point in terms of breaking down this binary, because just because someone is able to say, and I think that also goes down to the conversation on accessibility and stuff, because so much of accessibility becomes that this kind of blanket way of accommodating disabled people. For instance, if we go to the cinema and you have these sort of screenings, which are, you know, uh, where the audio is read out to you or they're, they're friendly for people who have a hearing disability or a sight disability, the way they approach it is a one-size-fits-all kind of situation. So whereas a deaf person might not be able to see or might not be able to hear what's being said, they could see what's happening. So if you have subtitles, they, they could attend a normal screening. But with a, with a person who is visually impaired or is blind and is not able to see what's happening, they could attend an auditory hearing. In so many ways, one is made available for the other. So this sort of lumping together of different disabilities like this, oh, we have this one disability-friendly screening, just undoes the different abilities and capacities that people across the spectrum of disability have. Well, that, I think, and I think that's such a useful word, spectrum, because just remembering when I was growing up and when I'm at school and things like that, it's very clear from the outset that you know disability is this one thing that's associated with for example a wheelchair and that's like that's your um quintessential you know <laughs> disabled uh person body and then uh every everyone and everything else kind of exists on the other uh, side of that and there's definitely no scope for spectrum and i think that's why also just thinking about school and growing up when you're a kid you know you're just taking in all these narratives you're not necessarily thinking about them too critically and i think that's why anybody who sort of fell within a spectrum, which is sort of everyone else, um, if you weren't able, I think, to present in a particularly high-functioning way and you weren't necessarily a um, quote-unquote high achiever, then it was also sort of this problem of like, well, either you're weird or there's something wrong with you, there's something off with you. And I think that's when we then go into that ground of like all these slurs as well around different words, I suppose, used to kind of talk about people who, who weren't able to meet this criteria that is enforced as a norm, but clearly isn't. Um, but I guess also like, it's not something that I really had to think about that deeply as somebody who who is and was categorized as able-bodied, as neurotypical, um, and I think disability was in that sense, something that was also framed as like, oh, thank God, like that's a disadvantage that like, I just, you know, wouldn't, you know, that's something you shouldn't want. It's something that you should want to be very far from um, and something to be overcome and avoided basically. And is that, does that characterization of that resonate with you as well? Yeah, that, that, that characterization actually resonates with me quite well. And especially, and I think it becomes a lot more of a, uh, issue the stigma that's attached to it when we look at our own communities the communities of color right because there's also all of these notions that come with being disabled and in some kind of way i always had that i I don't want to say the privilege because it wasn't really a privilege because i was disabled but i had the privilege of not being seen as disabled right because like for all intents and purposes i did fine at school i used to play sport i used to do all of those things but i did significantly suffer in a lot of different things and that's where this language of high functioning and low functioning also comes in because often 
And I really hate this high functioning, low functioning binary because as someone who is often identified as a high functioning person, it essentially erased any difficulties I was having. But at the same part, at the same time, it presented people who couldn't function in the same way as me as less than me and as because they were so-called low functioning. So the way it often pans out when it comes to like autism is that people who have who are non-verbal, who have speech difficulties, will be categorized as low functioning because they can't communicate effectively. But that that's just wrong because for all intents and purposes, they have different registers of functioning than me in different attributes. And so I remember when I dis- when I discovered that I was autistic and I was attending an autism support group at university, and to me, it was explained that, you know, high functioning, low functioning, all of these things, it's basically part of a spectrum and understand. And that's why we need to do away with this kind of language of high functioning and low functioning, because the attributes I may have, like, for instance, I am a high functioning verbal person. I'm, I'm hyperverbal. I really like talking, but I could be low functioning in different instances, which is sort of you know, social communication and nonverbal communication because I'm really poor at it. And whereas it could be different for other people who could be very high functioning in, say, cognitive skills, but could be so-called low functioning in their verbal skills. And so it just flattens under- out those kinds of yeah, nuances. Yeah, it just flattens out those nuances. And instead, what is a far more helpful way to understand this would be something like a kind of like those, you know, circular kind of pie chart kind of things, as opposed to like a linear you know, spectrum of just like oh, on one end is the high functioning, on the other end is the low functioning. And I think also whenever you have something like that, like high and low functioning, it, it does implicitly at least carry a, like a value judgment. Like, you know, to be high functioning is definitely going to be rewarded more than being low functioning and socially rewarded rewarded, economically rewarded, you know, in all those senses. So I guess it's quite clear already um, that this binary uh, is not only problematic, but that it's hiding things um, and that it's constructed. And, uh, you know, I know actually that, you know, the the terms themselves um, have been under so much scrutiny and, and lots of people are not happy with, you know, even the assumptions kind of in the words themselves. So to begin, I guess, uh, how can we start to unpick this? Um, and what would you say is is maybe... Just as a starting point, what is the central issue um, with the assumption that ability and disability are opposites? So I think the central issue which places ability and disability as opposites and of themselves is this particular construction that exists of of ability. So someone who is able to participate in, you know, uh, capitalism is able to go ahead and work, is is able to communicate effectively, whatever that means, and is able to, for all intents and purposes, the way we understand in a very kind of loaded sense the word normal, I think. And the word normal is, I think it's important here, it's significant here, because whatever is considered to be able-bodied is the norm is it is the norm right and if we are disabled and if we don't fit that norm we essentially get pigeonholed into this category of disabled a lot of that and you know coming to the diagnostic manual all of these things which of course that has an issue in of itself of also being historically inaccurate in the sense that it presents for instance being you know gay was often seen as a mental illness why? Because it didn't meet a normative idea of heteronormativity or of being a trans person was considered a mental illness. Why? Because it didn't meet, again, the normative idea of gender. 
and how much of a role normativity plays in creating what is then not the norm and hence the disabled is the biggest issue over here because it places people who might have different experiences from yours as the opposite to you, as somehow bad, as somehow less than human than you. Because I remember uh, at university when I when I started meeting more and more people who were autistic, who had like who had different disabilities, there was a person who was a voice hearer. And they would, you know, hear voices and they wanted to start a voice hearing society for other voice hearers. And the first time that they went to the student union to talk about it, it was it was awful for them because people of the student union essentially looked at them as if they were crazy. And no one wants that because you're trying to create a supportive community for other people who are already experiencing the stigma because they are not the norm. And then to be stigmatized and even creating that space only just reinforces that stigma further. And why? Because they have sensory experiences that are different from what are considered normative sensory experiences. And I think also that, I think it's interesting what you said about... um you know, not only are you kind of not the norm, but in not being the norm, you're considered less human, less valuable. Um, And I think there's something in what you were saying about kind of the stigma that's attached that, and I think this occurs, I would say in almost every binary that, you know, we've explored in this podcast and that could be, probably could be explored ever, which is, I think there's a projection that happens by people who are able to occupy the more um, advantageous, like, and I say that in terms of like socially and economically um, rewarded position. So uh, if you're not considered disabled, then I think that, or you don't consider yourself to be, then I think you also, there's also an element of kind of revulsion that's, that comes more from a place of wanting to distance yourself from the possibility of being in that category or being near to that category of disabled, because you recognize that to A to B, there would make you less human it would make you less valuable but b also that that this isn't a binary and actually if we were to um kind of look more closely then all of us would kind of have to question a little bit what it is that it means to be human in fact per se like what does it mean to uh inhabit uh the world what what does it mean when we know that like there is no real like one uh universal good uh quote-unquote uh person or body to to be and inhabit and that to me links to what you were saying earlier and i wanted to like just maybe ask you about this um, more specifically also to do with race because at the same time that race was being constructed during this period of you know enlightenment enlightenment thinking colonization um, race was very much also about the body and how these these different types of bodies that are less able than the you know white European body and not just body but mind and just broadly like ability and so does does that mean that you know is there an argument here also about dis, uh, disability and ability being formed as part of a white supremacist colonizing uh, mission? And, and does seeing it in that way help us in any way, would you say? I think that is absolutely true. And I wish I had, you know, some sort of like literature to like drop right now because there is so much fantastic literature that has been written on this. But uh, one of the best kind of, I think, spaces to look for this would be the Harriet Tubman Collective. They have, uh, so they have this document, which is basically Disability Solidarity. And it came around the time where the first call for the vision for Black Lives, for the Black Lives Matter movement started around 2016. And they essentially critique the original sort of Black Lives Matter statement for not having space for disabled folk in it. 
and taking the origins of disability down to the origins of race, like of course that that makes sense. That implicitly makes sense because the project of the creation of race in itself is a eugenicist project. So of course it makes sense that the creation of disability as well is a eugenicist project. Can you just explain what that might mean for anyone who doesn't know what you mean when you say race is a eugenicist project? So in the sense that the selection of certain genetic types as being far more superior or far better as compared to other. If we look at the notion of the creation of disability and race through especially the lens of the transatlantic slave trade, where so much of your value as a you know as an object as the objectification of black people within that system was dependent on your physical attributes so the creation of disability then as being inextricable from capital value that if you are disabled if you are incapable of carrying out your functions that were deemed to be within this sort of you know capitalist inhumane frame you are automatically less than but that, of course, also then translates into, and I think this is one of the biggest issues when it comes to the way we understand disability and ability as these very bioessentialist, biocentric ways of understanding it, as if something it's just something that's inhabited within the body and not something that is experienced by us socially and informed by us structurally and socially, because the higher proportion of disability will be found within populations that are socially marginalized because of the fact that they do not have the security, the economic security, the social security to be able to live in a risk-free environment, to put it mildly. So, for instance, people with disability are twice as likely to be living in poverty because poverty also operates as a cause and consequence of disability. It causes disability, but also because you are disabled, you cannot escape poverty. But also how people who have you know, neurodivergent uh, differences end up being far more present within the sort of carceral system. So they're, they're incarcerated at higher rates, not just within the prison system, but also within the juvenile system, within the mental health system, et cetera, et cetera. But also in a far more sort of uh, diagnostic kind of way. So the reason that most women, but also specifically women of color, non-binary folks of color, and also sometimes men of color end up being diagnosed with neurodivergent differences a lot later is because diagnostic tools were developed with the normative white man in mind. This is a very big issue when it comes to women and girls and non-binary folk being diagnosed with autism. There's a reason why the greater population of women who are autistic are diagnosed much later in their you know, lives. Like I was diagnosed at the age of 22. That's really interesting. So there's also like... Um... So within this as well, it sounds like there's like a, there's the right kind of disabled person and there's the wrong, many different (laughs) wrong kinds of disabled people or people uh, with disabilities. And uh, I think also within that, just, I was just reflecting on some of the examples you're giving, you know, that sounds like then also disability is criminalized. That's something that you will experience punitive measures for having or being um, or experiencing. And, and that, that also, I think, yeah, I guess I, I think what I took from what you were saying is it's important, I suppose, to recognize like the connection between race and disability, but also to recognize that uh, although 
ability is racialized, like disabled people of color are going to have very specific experiences because at that intersection, basically. And you know, I just wondered if you had anything to say on that before I kind of move into the next uh, question. I think another thing which I wanted to say on that was that a lot of times when we talk about disability, we somehow don't focus on chronic health conditions a lot. And but also this whole binary of invisibility and visibility as well, which we kind of like talked about in the beginning. But going back to the chronic health conditions, I think that is, again, important in the context of racialization, because people who are racialized and not just uh, racialized as in brown and black, but also like, for instance, First Nation people, often they will experience greater rates of disability and greater rates of chronic health problems due to the neglecting of their communities, due to neglecting of geographically where they're based, but also historically. So if we think back to, you know, the poisoning of water, the poisoning of food, all of these sorts of things, the greater rates of employment of black, brown, and, you know, in the context of Canada and the US, of First Nation people in precarious employment and the stresses that places on our bodies and how they precipitate into higher incidences of heart diseases, of, of cancer, of, you know, musculoskeletal diseases. And if we are to better understand, especially given where we are right now, at this intersection of a global pandemic, but also the pandemic of racism that has existed for so long and understand how we can, you know, think of a world where healthcare and health is accessible to everyone, not in the, dis- not in the accessibility that we understand through disability, but accessibility as a thing of being human, of how can we all be complete humans through that. It is important that the language of how we understand disability extends far beyond the sort of biocentric way and into acknowledging that there are, you know, middle areas, there are gray areas, and there's so many different ways that disability has not even been thought of yet that exists, that can be thought of. That's really helpful because I think there's sort of two key things that made me think about. And one is that I think a lot of the ways that disability and ability are talked about or kind of introduced to people is is a very individualized notion. There's also that whole thing of, oh, people who quote unquote overcome a disability and, you know, this kind of notion of like, despite my quote unquote barriers. And I think that's something that for me anyway, for a long time, hid this idea of like this being a structural, structurally caused, structurally uh, made worse as well. And I think, so what you're saying about, um, you know, this historic element of kind of what happens if you deprive, um, neglect and violate and kind of inflict violence upon people for centuries, but then continue to, it just made me think as well about how um, a friend of mine was telling me that during this pandemic, I don't know exactly wh- where they were speaking about specifically, but and, and this is like within Europe, by the way, like in intensive care units, like a hospital bed um, kind of being being preserved or prioritized for people who are on a scale of one to 10, there's this notion of like um, fragility. And so it's like, if you're lower down, there's like more chance of you quote unquote living. So it's not quote unquote on living, more, the quote unquote was on more chance of you living. And so um, what he was saying was just that, you know, this inherently means that if you have a disability, you're going to be seen as already a body that is fragile and therefore a body that is is always more close to death. And I think there's something about the closeness of death and disability that is what makes it something that's so stigmatized, but also something that is like, you know, this is not something to be supported, quote unquote. And I think, you know, a friend of mine who lives in Sweden was talking about um, how recently um, assisted living became a thing where people could actually, you know, on the government, um, you know, have assistants who would, uh, you know, enable them to be able to live their lives in the way that they wanted to essentially. And how then during coronavirus, when it's become like everybody, 
including the, you know, able-bodied, productive, quote-unquote, efficient workers. Um, it's like, oh, actually, we can make space for everybody to be able to work in the ways that they need to be assisted at home. And I think there's just just something about what you were saying makes me think about, yeah, there's, this is very much also tied to like who we deem to be disposable enough, like it's okay, they can die, and who it's like, no, you can't die because you're essential to the economy. And I think coronavirus has brought that so much to the fore. And I think, but I think that ties back really well to the discussion around like you know, who is seen as being human in the first place, right? Because it's also because as much as disability and chronic illness becomes a part of the structural conditions and all of those things, the violence also that comes out of the structural conditions. So I'm thinking of specifically, for instance, situations like in Kashmir or in Palestine, or also you know the very violent response that then comes from the state, where people who are marginalized, who are stigmatized because of the fact that they are marginalized people within a particular space are then maimed or injured in this kind of way. And that's where I think, so I'm thinking of Jasbir Puar's book, Right to Maim, which essentially makes this point that how the state utilizes this space between injury and death, where, you know, where death is that, and that closeness to death is that final kind of assault on your life and how the creation of this population that can then be injured or maimed at will is this creation of a population that is in surplus to the economy that you know whose existence this is a necessity for capitalism for neo-imperialism for colonialism to keep existing so people who already by definition of the fact that they're marginalized are already regarded as you know less than human or even non-human depending on the period of history you're in are then further sort of injured or maimed and rendered even more disposable and with coronavirus of course that was disabled people but also people who are racialized so for instance taxi drivers for instance you know uh workers who are essential workers but also workers in care workers uh, who work in the hotel industry who work in the service industry who disproportionately are people of color and what does it mean that people of color who already experience precarity because of the fact that they're racialized are rendered to even more precarity because of this particular virus, but all the other, you know, uh, disablement or the other kind of maiming that can happen on them. And so I think understanding disability like patriarchy, like white supremacy, like heteronormativity, all of these things as an underlying aspect of the structure of this sort of, you know, colonial uh, hell in a way that we live in, that we exist in, and how that is something that also needs to go, how that needs to be a part of our fight for collective liberation. Yeah, so on that point, because I think you've made it very clear, you know, that this is a construct ability disability, and it, it, you know, everything you've just said is basically what is hidden and obscured by this. And that would be my usual question at this point. So instead, I want to ask you kind of, uh, I think, hopefully more fruitfully for people who are listening and for myself, you know, when what you just said there, I think is a really crucial point that in, you know, a lot of these episodes with people where we're, we're trying to imagine different futures, we're trying to imagine futures where there is justice, where people can live more livable lives, um, where people are, you know, um, free from violence, free to be to be safe. And I think, what you just touched on there, it's very clear that many of these visions still maintain the disposability of those that are deemed to be uh, disabled. And I think I also just wanted to ask you as well, actually, maybe before I get into that, like, 
the the language of disabled um i know that some people ha- kind of problematize this and say that it you know in of itself it presumes that rather than it being about society it's not, it doesn't talk about the society that disables it's just like the body that is disabled or the person that is disabled I, I I find that quite I find that as an interesting actually as an interesting formulation because I do agree with that because even though I identify as a disabled person I identify as a disabled person because I have been disabled by the structures right and it's not that I am not I don't have agency to react against it in fact my continued existence even though I'm disabled day in and day out is a manifestation of that agency yeah yeah that's true i think actually the, that was first introduced to me like that concept in a way that for me at least was just quite a vivid way of um exemplifying it so somebody was just saying if if everywhere in the world was like um wheelchair accessible um we wouldn't think of being in a wheelchair as a disability because the society has not made it has not disabled or like made that like something that means you can't access you know safety wellness etc um and i think there's obviously scope for that on so many different levels and scales and so then suddenly the question becomes like you know can we almost like can we make disability as a category um obsolete in this not in a problematic sense of like uh disposing of that and obviously like for people who for whom that's like actually a um something they politically organize around like that's not what i mean but i just mean in the sense that if we were able to build a society that doesn't disable anybody, um, that actually enables everybody to access wellness, freedom, safety. And I guess this links to what I was trying to say earlier, like what could you offer or suggest for people who are trying to envision those futures that also makes sure we don't um, continue to reinforce that marginalization of people who are disabled um, and experiencing disabilities? Like, is there, you know, you've, you've made it very clear there's so many connections, but is there something that you think is, is clearly missing in the organizing that we do often around building this future? I think I think a lot of the organizing, and so I'm not trying to be critical of people who are organizing around this because of course, being proud of, you know, having a disability where you're stigmatized in this kind of way that, oh, you know, you are less than because you have a disability and in face of that being like, no, like, you know, I'm proud of who I am, even though I have a disability. I'm proud of who I am because I have a disability. And celebrating a disability, of course, those are important in this idea of celebrating yourself. But I feel like that is very much an organizational idea that comes out of this sort of very neoliberal way of how we just understand the world, where it's all about the self. Oh, I'm proud in myself, in my own capacity, in my own kind of, you know, I'm cel- I'm going to celebrate myself in this whole like self-care kind of wellness kind of thing. And it's it also the- seems to fit that model of like, you know, uh, I'm a good one. Like, I, I mean, I, I won't speak over that, but I think in the example, for example, just people where you're talking about race or you're talking about Muslims, I know there's that whole be the good one, you know, get a seat at the table. And I've overcome, quote unquote, those those barriers. Yeah. And yeah, and that forms such, I think that forms such a large part of what a lot of disability organizing, unfortunately, is. And also a lot of disability organizing, unfortunately, is a very white space because it has only been, and I think this speaks more to my lack of knowledge as compared to a lack of these collectives, is that I did not know that there were collectives that were you know, led by black people and other people of color who were organizing around around disability. So I recently came across Black Disability Collective and I've learned so much from them. And I think 
the way I think racialized people, uh, people of color, we approach the issue of disability because of the fact that we already sit at the intersections of our multiple identities. We already understand that our response to this has to be a structural response. It cannot be a response that is about our individualized, you know, only about disability, not by anything else. And so I feel like a better way of approaching this would be something would be looking at disability through the lens of precarity. So and this is not a new thing that I'm saying, I think. So just be a poor has said this. Uh, other people of color have said this who are working in disability, kind of disability studies as a field. And also uh, First Nation people and other indigenous people have also said this, where we understand our populations which are already marginalized as already experiencing a kind of disablement from the systems and understanding that due to our precarity, we are even more likely to experience what we understand as biocentric disability and hence organizing around not just abolishing this binary of disability and ability, but abolishing the systems that make us precarious in the first place. And I think that as a way to organize around these structural systems that render us as of less value is, is in my opinion, a far better way of organizing ourselves because so much of the violence that is experienced by people who are disabled gets lost in this sort of celebration and this pride around disability. Just like thinking uh, as about spaces as well where, you know, particularly over the, the you know, 2020, conversations around abolition um i th- i do feel like at least in, and again this is I, I liked what you said about kind of it probably reflects more to do with my knowledge um than what's actually happening but i think in the mainstream conversations around abolition if, if such a thing can be said to be a thing um there's definitely not a lot of space to think about um for example like psychiatric wards as places of um imprisonment or like where you know policing and punitive measures are being uh, happening to people and i think that it's been useful for me where people have helped me make those connections because if I, I often talk about, you know, safety being really central to kind of the world that I want to build. I think it's impossible for me to talk about safety uh, if I'm not then doing, I guess what, you know, Bell Hooks talks about centering the margins. And I think this for me is just another way of imagine a much more robust vision of, of a safe future and a, a future where people are, you know, free from the violence of the state. Um, and all other kinds of violence, which I think stem from that. So that's really helpful. And I think it's clear that this is not, I think something that can sometimes happen with the way I've seen disability spoken about in an intersectional framework is that it's like an add-on. So it's like, oh, and uh, disability. Um, and it sounds like from what you said that, you know, I mean, you've made it very clear that this is inextricably linked to everything that everybody is experiencing all the time and every other kind of social construction of uh, our experiences but more than anything that it's actually maybe a way for us to hold the mirror up to the state and think about like uh, and institutions and think about how what role they play in making our lives more precarious and I think that that what you said about precarity was was really useful um I think you've kind of answered the final question I usually ask, like, what's a better way of thinking about this? Um, and I just wondered, like, do you have any concluding thoughts or is there anything that you want to... I think 
I think the overarching sort of concluding thought I would have is, and this is like this is something which has come to my mind because I've been seeing a lot of like able-bodied and neurotypical friends of mine sort of going on about, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe 2020 has been wasted. And this kind of just like, because they've had to stay at home, because they can't meet their friends, they can't participate in social activities and just go on with their life as normal. Oh, we, you know, I'm just like, I'm just so sick of this. Like, I just want to be outside. 2020 is wasted. It just always irritates me and kind of hurts me a little bit because as someone who, for multiple reasons, disability being one of the bigger ones, can't always interact with the world on her own terms, it makes me feel that in an implicit way it's being said that my life has been wasted because I haven't been able to engage with all of these you know, cool things that are out there in the world, which I can't access all the time. And, you know, and this whole thing of just like, oh, you know, we will see each other once 2020 is over. We'll see each other once this coronavirus pandemic is over. And it reminded me of something that Azizat had said in a piece that she had written as being someone who is, you know, with a chronic illness going through and is vulnerable in the coronavirus time. It just sort of this time, this kind of dialogue of just like when we'll see each other once coronavirus is over or I've wasted my life or my life has been wasted. My year has been wasted because of coronavirus sort of is a narrative which is come which comes out of an absolute lack of empathy with the experiences so many of us are constantly facing because yes we would love to you know be able to engage with the world as well in the way that you know able-bodied neurotypical people can and also we would love to meet our friends once coronavirus is over but presuming that you can do it when we can't make those presumptions because we don't know how this particular virus is going to affect us in itself. I don't want to use the word privilege, but in a way it is a privilege because it because you are you are secure in that knowledge that you're going to exist through this. And I think my sort of takeaway would be in that sense that to sort of reform the way we think about these things and have more empathy with people and not really think of time as time that is wasted or time that you need to you that just needs to get over because so many of us are living with this time all the time so having a bit more empathy having a bit more kind of understanding about how people are operating in different registers through this crisis but also not expecting a normal because what you consider as your normal has always been violent to us maybe even like Beyond empathy, I think it's it's something it's something other than that because it's kind of like saying that you know oh like I've been doing quote unquote nothing my time's wasted. I think it also implicitly you're giving consent to that former way of living that did mean as you said that like you know loads of for lots of people uh, life was not just unsafe but like unlivable for many people and I think you're right you know this idea of going back or a new normal or whatever it it does still rest on on that and so I think it's yes it's something beyond just like a lack of empathy but a kind of I think just a centering of like a very certain type of experience as the one that really matters and it's okay that many people will continue to have um you know a life where they're not able to access the outdoors because well you know it's not me and they they are disposable anyway I think that's what that's what that for me yeah brings up 
No, you you have phrased that a lot better than I could at the moment because I was having like brain fog. But no, yeah, that exactly is what it is. And that instead of wanting to return back to how things were or trying to establish some kind of new normal, which, you know, gives us like piecemeal kind of, um, what is the word, reasonable adjustments that they really like to use when it comes to like people who with disabilities. Instead of giving us like piecemeal reasonable adjustments, why don't we try to reframe the way we even think about what should be normal? So, yeah. Can I ask you um, an imagination based question? Because I've been enjoying kind of investing some time into like what would it, you know, if we could imagine alternative futures and, um, you know, some of the questions like, and I, I was recently in a really exciting conversation around like, if you can imagine a decolonized education system, what, you know, and it's 2030, what does that look like? And, and these kinds of things. And so I guess just to help us like visualize as listeners as well a little bit, um, if you, uh, you know, woke up tomorrow in a, a world in which sort of the socioeconomic political changes had been made that, that kind of would mean that this binary no longer exists, that it's kind of almost been abolished. Could you imagine or even begin to maybe just walk us through what a day in that world could look like or just like some of the things that you or stand out to you and you think this has to be in that world or this has to not be in that world? So on a, on a less serious note, I would really hope that sirens and like loud things don't exist. That's just a, <laughs> that's just a, that's just a personal sort of sensory kind of thing. No, but in a more on a kind of like a serious sort of sense, like... I think it would just it would just mean that I wouldn't have to explain my experiences to people and so many of us wouldn't have to explain our experiences and that we wouldn't be stigmatized or even just sort of you know it's not even about the stigma just we would be seen as human enough to be able to make the choices that we want to that we know work best for us because so much of the sort of disability causal complex as well takes away the ability for us to make those choices that we know work for us and yeah i think that's what it would be but this question is quite has made it quite like, obvious to me that I haven't thought that far because somehow no, I feel but we like, never get you know, a chance to, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> but who's giving you the opportunity to invest that time? I think it's something that none of us are really afforded to do. But but I think what you actually said though, the most uh, is probably one of the most helpful things, which is that trusting that people know what they best need for their lives to be livable. Um, and I think that's true across so many different you know forms of uh, violence, oppression, imperialism, whatever. Um, but particularly perhaps when it comes to this binary where I think there's also this presumption that um, people know what is best for disabled people. So yeah, no, I actually, I found that really, really helpful. And um, I think for me, that's that there's a lot that I will take from this, but um, perhaps, you know, as somebody who is able-bodied and who doesn't um, experience disabilities, I think just particularly this notion of centering and listening to um, voices of people who, who are not in my position and who I can therefore learn from. So thank you so much. Um, if there's anything else that you want to add, like, please go ahead. But otherwise, um, thank you. Um, no, this was great. Thank you so much. I just wanted to give out a sh- give a shout out to the Black Disability Collective, uh, Autistic Tyler and uh, Chloe and Annette of Academy, who helped me figure out that I was autistic. Um, yeah, and I think these three sort of like digital sources have been so helpful to me, but have also been a space of community for me to to learn, to unlearn and know more about just, you know, because I think all of us grow up with internalized ableism, regardless of being disabled, not being, you know, 
disabled and I think it's just interacting with these different spaces has really kind of helped me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at at GetViolenceJack online. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzul Khan. Bye.